The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Well, good morning. It's good to be together this week as we look at God's Word. And we want to especially welcome those who are watching online and in the chapel. We're glad you could join us this morning. And we do hope that you'll come join us in person when you're able Would you join me as we pray and ask God for help? Father in heaven, that is our prayer this morning. Show us Christ. We want to see the beauty and the majesty of Jesus more clearly. And then we want to be changed by having seen the face of Jesus. Conform us increasingly into the image of your Son and help us to live out our calling as your people. Empower us for the work ahead of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What is the greatest threat to the church of Jesus Christ today? Think about that for five seconds. What is the greatest threat to the church of Jesus Christ today? You have something in mind? Well, some would say it's the liberal left pushing the ideologies that are contrary to the word of God. Or some would say that's the adulterous marriage of Christianity and politics. Some would say Christian nationalism, where patriotism turns into idolizing America over God. Some would say it's increasing persecution for the church in society. Some would say maybe internal squabbles among believers on secondary issues. Or some would say it's abuse and hyperheadship or the unwillingness to stand up against false teaching when it creeps into the church. Or some would say it's the, the loss of young people. Young people are kind of deconverting in droves. Or maybe it's the hyper-sexualized world that we live in with all of its gender confusion and rampant sexual immorality. Well, I would argue from our passage this morning that the greatest threat to the church of Jesus Christ is a church that would neglect or minimize or undermine the ministry of word and prayer. That's the greatest threat to the church today. If the church minimizes or undermines or neglects or abandons the ministry of prayer and the word, we no longer have a church. Without biblical preaching, we've become a club. Without prayer, we have a flurry of activities and things on the calendar, but no deep abiding communion with God himself. The church is the gathering of the people of God in order to hear the word of God so that we hear God himself speak. And then we speak back to him in prayer and worship. And, and I'm concerned that there are so many, far too many Christians that go to churches where they get to hear the opinions of the person standing up front, but they don't ever get to hear God speak. 
And so a church that minimizes the Bible and prayer will inevitably minimize God. And a church that does not pray or preach the Bible is no church at all. The neglect of God's word indicates the eventual and slow death of a congregation. So what I want to do this morning is wave the banner for the ministry of word and prayer this morning. So the main point of our passage is that the church must prioritize the ministry of word and prayer. And, as our passage will show us, the church must not neglect to delegate care in order to meet the needs of the body. This passage reveals the priority of the apostles, the ministry of word and prayer, and yet they don't neglect care the physical needs of the body as well. These two things are held in tension together for us this morning. And I think it's unfortunate that so often in our world, these things are pitted against one another. Perhaps you've heard someone say, well, we want to be a church that really cares about people. You know, we want to feed the hungry and and love hurting people and reaching the lost, not, you know, squabble over kind of what does the Bible say about all these obscure things and theological sword fighting? Or, or perhaps others, you might hear them say, well, we want to be a church that's really full of sound doctrine. You know, we, we just want the preaching of the Bible, undistilled. Don't talk about culture or politics or hurting people. All of those things distract from us really caring about what, what God says in his word. And I would just say that this morning, both those things are insufficient. When we ask the question, do we want to be a church that preaches the Bible or a church that loves people? The answer is yes. So the question for us this morning is, how does a church rightly prioritize and accomplish both? And and I think that's what our passage gets at this morning here in Acts 6. Our passage breaks down into four parts. We get the problem in verse 1, and then we get the solution in verses 2 to 4, and then we get the implementation of that solution in 5 and 6, and then we get the result in verse 7. A problem, a solution, the implementation, and then the result. So let me just set the stage for Acts 6 very briefly for us. So far, we've been in our Acts series, and we've seen Acts 1 through 5. And that has been the advance, the unstoppable advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem. Even as the religious leaders try to hold it back, the gospel continues to advance. And now, here in chapters 6 through 12, we see this transition where the gospel is beginning to go into Judea and Samaria. As Jesus himself said in Acts 1.8, I've called you to be witnesses in Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria and then to the very ends of the earth. And that's chapter 13 onward to the very ends of the earth through Paul. But here in chapter 6, we begin to get this transition to Judea and Samaria. And so this passage introduces two key leaders for us, which is Stephen and Philip. And this passage also reveals how it is unstoppable, not only in the face of all these external threats, these these religious leaders that are trying to hold back kind of futilely, putting their fingers over the dam, and yet 
the church isn't stopped by internal threats either of division or complaints. So what I want to do is look at the problem here now in verse 1. Luke opens by saying, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number. This is the first time the word disciple shows up and is used in the book of Acts, and it's used 28 times. And so what disciples might have referenced before, which is Jesus and his followers, now disciples is being used to reference all those who've come to believe in Jesus through the apostles' ministry. And at the end of chapter 5, we see that they did not cease teaching and preaching in Jesus' name. And then 6-1 begins with, the disciples were increasing in number. And so the church is continuing to grow and grow and grow. And so they're probably between five and 10,000 people at this point. And now they come across some really significant big church problems. The passage says, a complaint arose from the Hellenists against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So there's a number of questions that we have to answer here. First, the Hellenists are Greek-speaking Jews, and this is contrasted with the Hebrews who would have spoken Aramaic. So these Hellenists had their own Greek-speaking synagogues, and the Hellenists likely moved to Jerusalem from the dispersion or are the descendants of those who did. And now they've come to faith in Jesus. So the complaint is that their widows are being neglected. This would be a little bit like here at the North Campus, we have a pretty large uh, Chinese-speaking group of people. Or the downtown campus has a, a, a Hispanic ministry, or the South Campus has a Russian ministry. We're all part of the same church, and yet there's some cultural and linguistic differences. And the problem is that widows would have been the most economically and socially vulnerable people. And some believe maybe this was discrimination, but more likely that this was just that the church was growing so rapidly that so many new widows are being added to the roles and their system just couldn't accommodate it. Or perhaps there were less Greek-speaking Christians, but an unusual number of Greek-speaking widows that they couldn't meet all the various needs. So the early church sought to function as the safety net, as the social security net for these widows to fall back on. If you'll remember, Acts 4.34 said there was not a needy person among them because the church was overflowing in generosity. So the church was doing a really good thing, and yet a complaint comes. And I don't know if this is a comforting text to you so far, but this is a really comforting text to me. This is really good news. Do you know why? Because even the early church had problems. This makes me feel so much better about Bethlehem. (laughs) It's true. They had the apostles. You know, sometimes we think, well, if we had better leaders, we wouldn't have problems. Well, they had the apostles. They walked with Jesus himself. They heard all of Jesus' teachings firsthand. They were filled with the very first fillings of the Holy Spirit. And they had problems. They had problems. There is no perfect church in the world. And that is really comforting for me, and hopefully it's comforting for us this morning. And and, and I think 
here in this kind of pandemic, post-pandemic, COVID world, uh, you know, I hear a lot of different things. People saying, well, I'm going to start going to this church now because they have better policies and and I don't have to wear a mask. Or I'm going to go here because they have better parking and there's a lot of kind of shifting and I get together with some senior pastors and and we talk about some of these things. And, and, And I just want to encourage us. There is no perfect church in the world. And if you find it, don't join it because you're going to screw it up. <laughs> the, the, the reality is that we are all sinners and the church is comprised of sinners. And, and that's just going to be true of this church as well. So if you're thinking about membership and you've only seen really good things, I hate to break it to you, but we have problems. We have imperfections. We are a people that is comprised of sinners. We have complaints here as well. But what I want to do is call us to be a people that cultivates grace and mercy and love for one another. That we're not quick to judge. We're not quick to condemn one another, but we're quick to be gracious with one another. Because we have Jesus. And Jesus was so, so, so gracious with us. He is so gracious with us. Even in our failures, he continues to be gracious with us. And so we want to be a church that cultivates a culture of grace and charity and love. And that means we're going to continue to have problems. But I'd rather be a church that is a hospital for sinners rather than a museum for saints. I'd rather be a church that is a hospital for sinners rather than a museum for saints. So that's the problem. Now we turn to the solution, verses 2 to 4. The solution comes in three parts. They prioritize the spiritual and physical needs. They delegate the work. And then they devote themselves to word and prayer. So we see prioritization, delegation, and devotion. So first, they recognize the problem and prioritize what's most important. Look with me at verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. This is stunning. This is surprising. James would have been among these disciples. And James is the one that wrote, in James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Caring for widows is really important. Why would the apostles possibly say that we shouldn't give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables? Are they saying that widows are unimportant? No. What they're saying is that God's word must take first priority. The priority of God's word. These are the very disciples that were taught to wash feet by Jesus himself. They were told that you are to be servants. Don't lord it over others like the Gentiles do. They were told to expect persecution. So the apostles are not being arrogant. But what they are saying is that we are to prioritize the ministry of the word. The church cannot neglect the teaching and preaching of God's word even as we don't neglect the physical needs of its members. Both can be gloriously true. It's like if we had a parenting seminar 
and we gather all the parents of young children, and we say to them, of chief importance for moms and dads is, is to teach your children about Jesus, to model it in the way that you live and to care for them in showing them Christ. No one would conclude from that statement, well, then I don't need to feed them anymore. I don't have to bathe them. I don't have to give shelter to them. We're just saying that there is a priority to things, that the, the spiritual realities are really significant, not that the physical realities are unimportant, but the spiritual realities have eternal consequences. And so the phrase where they say it's not right actually means it's not pleasing in God's eyes. And these apostles had a unique God-given responsibility to pass on what they have seen as the first eyewitnesses of Jesus' life, teaching, death, and resurrection, and ascension. So they're not trying to get out of washing dishes, but they're saying that the priority is to be put on God's word. And I think this can be kind of overdone, where, where we ha- have leaders that refuse to care for the, the other needs. But I think in our, our, our church, in worldwide, uh, America, I would say, that the temptation is actually, in many of our churches, to minimize or undermine the ministry of word and prayer. I think the principle is this, that there are an endless number of things that the church could do and a limited number of things the church must do. There are an endless number of things that the church could do, but there are a limited number of things that the church must do. We must, as a church, preach and teach God's word, administer baptism and the Lord's table, and then gather together as the people of God. And then there's a ton of other things that we could do. Here's a list. We, we, we could do community cleanup. We could, some of you would really like a basketball or softball league. Or we could visit the elderly at the convalescent home. Or an adoption and foster care support group. Or refugee resettlement ministry. Or literacy programs for the disadvantaged. Or a community food shelf. Or a community counseling center. Or maybe a church coffee shop. Or bus rides to church for those who don't have transportation. And yet in the midst of all that, a wise church enables wise leaders in order to rightly prioritize the things of first importance. So they prioritize. Second, they delegate. Verse 3 says, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So they tell the congregation to pick out men people with good reputations, full of the Spirit, and who have wisdom. And these three qualifications are so important because these men would be those who would handle money. They would need to be trustworthy. They would be interacting with vulnerable individuals. And yet they also needed to have practical wisdom, administration, and management in order to carry out a system of care for a church that is growing larger and larger. And Acts 6 is probably the precursor to how deacons emerged here in the early church. And these men aren't necessarily deacons themselves. Stephen actually goes on to preach the longest recorded sermon in Acts, in Acts 7, which we'll look at next week. Philip is an evangelist. But this passage highlights the importance of picking the right people and empowering them to serve here in the church. And, and, and we do that here at Bethlehem as well that we're always looking 
for people who are responsible and trustworthy and godly and full of the Spirit so that we could delegate work to them so that the body would meet all of its various needs. Notice also that this solution has congregational involvement. The people pick out seven men. They don't cast lots. The Holy Spirit doesn't give sort of this divine audible word, but rather the, the people pick this out, and this action actually pleased the whole gathering. It says that in verse 5. I think this illustrates two things, that the apostles had the wisdom to recognize that they couldn't do everything well, and this requires humility. They needed help to recognize that, and those bringing the complaint were ready to be part of the solution. They didn't just lob complaints and grumblings, but rather they were ready to put their hand to the plow to say, let me be part of the solution. Let's help fix it. And this is an outworking of what we see taught later. Ephesians 4, verse 11 and 12, that God gave the church apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers to do what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. So the people are to carry out the work of the ministry, and the church needs people who are eager to serve and leaders that are willing to delegate. And so I don't want this to become a commercial, but our aim coming this fall is to open up all of our ministries as normal. So sort of pre-pandemic normal ministry. Sunday schools on Sunday morning, Lord willing, and things on Wednesday night, and we're going to need people to serve. And so we're always looking for those who are willing to put their hand to the plow as we participate in discipling the next generation and building one another up. This situation is very similar to what we see take place in Exodus when Jethro says to Moses, when Moses is sitting there all day and night and judging the people's disputes and complaints and, you know, they stole my flower and he took my oxen and he would just sit there all day and night trying to judge all of these things. And Jethro says, that's not good. You're going to wear yourself out. This thing is too heavy for you. And he says, find men who fear God and who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. And so we see this principle of delegation throughout Scripture. And then the next thing we see is devotion. They say, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. So making sure poor widows have enough food would have been one of the most noble things they could possibly do. No one would have faulted the apostles for dropping everything and saying, let's tackle that. You know, maybe we'll have a 12-week sermon series on, you know, mercy and compassion and and, and not discriminating or, or whatever else. But no, they devote themselves to the things that cannot be delegated and delegate the things that they ought not to be doing. And this requires the humility to admit that they can't do it all, but it also requires the vision to be able to say that these things are more important. The ministry of the word and prayer is an essential element of the people of God and the gathering of the church. If we do not emphasize that, if we don't prioritize that, if we lose out on that, then we lose out on all of it. The people of God are not built up. So what's the, what's the meaning or what, what does it mean to, be, to talk about the ministry of word and prayer? 
I think this is talking about the beating heart of the very Christian church. The church gathers to hear God speak and expresses our dependence upon him in prayer. Without the teaching and preaching of the word of God, the church will wilt under the heat of the sun and the persecution. Without the water of prayer that which nourish the roots of the church, the leaves will wither. The preaching and teaching of the church is indispensable. Let me, let me say a word about prayer. The apostles are not only preaching and teaching, interpreting the Old Testament and, and teaching the people to do that, but they're praying together at the temple, praying from house to house, praying with and for the sick, praying in solitude. And, and, and I think th- this is a struggle for our modern age, to, to be alone with God or to gather with others in prayer. You know, most churches have done away with their prayer meetings. And and I think it just highlights that we, here in America, I think, struggle to pray. We constantly have our phones that have these notifications and pings, and our attention span is shrinking and shrinking. And here's an illustration. Think of prayer as electricity. We can't usually see electricity. We can't see the power of electricity. But this invisible power turns the lights on, powers our phones and computers and everything else. And without it, nothing works. And none of those things work until we flip the switch or until we're plugged in to the electrical current so that the power flows within us. Prayer is the way in which we connect to the source of power in our lives. A church that does not pray is a church in decline and that is trying to operate in the dark. And and, and I just, I I just feel this myself. You know, sometimes I'm in my office and, and I can stand at my desk and I can do emails. And if someone peeks in the window, they don't think anything of it. If I'm sitting there praying, people will think I've fallen asleep. I don't want people to think that when they walk by my office. And so I'll do emails, I'll prepare sermons, I'll write things. But to pray for an hour or two, we think, well, I should really start doing something. Praying is doing things, brothers and sisters. It is one of the primary ministries that we're called to, certainly for the leaders, but for the whole church as well. And so let's be engaged in the work of ministry of the word and prayer. I would say this, pray for your leaders to rightly prioritize the main things and to delegate the right things and then devote themselves to God and his word. Next is the implementation of the solution, verses five and six. Look with me at verse five. And what they said pleased the whole gathering and they chose Stephen a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, proselyte of Antioch. And these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. First, we see that this solution pleased the whole gathering. This is a happy people that is largely unified around the gospel of Jesus and the mission of the church. They're not on a rampage with personal grievances and consistently grumbling and complaining, but they're they're eager to see these needs met. 
And so they choose seven men, and all seven names are Greek names. And so very likely that they are Greek believers, and though they were also Greek-speaking, which means they could minister uniquely to these neglected widows. And then we also get the introduction of Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, who will be the main character for the rest of chapter 6 and all of chapter 7, which Sam is preaching next week. So pray for him. But he gives one of the most eloquent speeches, kind of giving a complete overview of the Old Testament, and then becomes the first Christian martyr. Nicholas is said to be a proselyte of Antioch, meaning that he was originally a convert to Judaism, and then now a Christian, which means all the others were born Jews. So after selecting the seven, they lay hands on them, delegating authority and responsibility to appoint them to accomplish this task. And then we get the result in verse 7. The result of this solution in appointing these seven to address this complaint is the continued growth of the church. Verse 7 says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So Luke tells us three things happen. The word of God increases, the church continues to grow numerically, and even Jewish priests begin to come to faith. This phrase, the word of God continue to increase, means that the God's word continues to take root into souls. It's almost like its own power. It's like the seed that's scattered in the parable of the soils, that it, it, it gets planted and it begins to reap a harvest of 30 and 60 and even a hundredfold, that the word of God continues to grow and increase, exerting more and more influence in that early world. Not only that, it's transforming hearts and minds and lives. And I would just ask this morning, is the word of God increasing in our hearts, transforming our minds? Are we being increasingly conformed into the image of Christ as we take in and read and study and memorize and meditate upon God's were. It says the Jewish priests were even coming to faith. The commentators say that maybe eight or even 10,000 priests worked on occasion at the temple. So they would work at the temple maybe two weeks out of the year. They had other jobs, but they would just go and they would be living in this surrounding region. So basically the National Guard of priests. And, and, and so not only are poor widows and commoners coming to faith, but even the religious leaders themselves are, are, are looking at this early church, hearing the preaching that's taking place, and they're saying, this must be true. And they're coming to saving faith. This illustrates the unstoppable work of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that as it spreads to Judea and Samaria, that it's crossing geographical barriers, and even cutting across social classes. This is the beginning of the gospel's advance across the ancient world. So the apostles took decisive action to address a deficiency in the life of the church. So how should we apply this text? What, what, what should we take away from it? Well, I, I've touched on it already, but we are an imperfect church. We are full of imperfect people. But I want to be a church that avoids grumbling and complaining. The word complain 
in Acts 6.1 is the same word that shows up in Philippians 2.14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And so grumbling is, in fact, a sin. God chastised Israel in the wilderness when they grumbled about not having meat. Uh, I think in this passage, Acts 6.1, it, it seemed justified because the apostles responded to it. But in general, we do not want to be a people that's mainly grumbling, complaining, backbiting, gossiping. But instead, we want to be a people that extends one another grace and charity. And, and yet the reality is we grumble because we see deficiencies in the church. And, and so if you see deficiencies, things that are not happening that you think ought to happen, or things that are being neglected that you think ought to not be neglected, I would just encourage you, reach out to any of your elders, and they would be happy to hear from you and to hear what you're thinking. They are not scary. There are ways in which you can bring your concerns to the church. Now, I can't guarantee that we can fix everything or that we can do all that we want together as a church. We do need to prioritize the things that are of first importance, but we also don't want there to be needs that go unmet here in this body. And so let me just call you to know that your elders love you. They pray for this flock and they labor behind the scenes to care for this people. I see it with my own eyes. And then we have a, a, a number of deacons who are laboring to meet all of the various needs in this body. And, and we probably need more people to come alongside them in meeting all the various needs. Uh, I'll, I'll even say, not only is there a complaint in Acts 6-1, but I, I think in the church, we're going to probably have sharp disagreements at times. We, we see that actually later in Acts, Acts 15, there's Barnabas and Paul, and, and there's such a sharp disagreement among them that wh whether to take John Mark to come with them and the question becomes, I think we should bring him. No, he abandoned us earlier. And so what do we do with him? And so Barnabas and Paul decide to go separate ways. Barnabas brings John Mark and Paul took Silas. And yet I think Paul later changed his mind on Mark in 2 Timothy 4.11. He says, get Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful to me for ministry. I think this just highlights just the state of our world and, and even our church, that there are going to be sharp disagreements. Church is full of imperfect people. There are going to be varying judgments, different perspectives, different instincts. And yet at the end of the day, may we be a church that is deeply, profoundly united on the main and central things of Christ crucified and him as Lord over the church. That we want to be a people that exists to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples through Jesus Christ. There are all these other peripheral things that we could get bent out of shape about. And yet, as the church, let's be centered around these central things. And, and I'm not saying all the other pressing issues are unimportant. Let me just list a few. How do we love hurting people? How do we lead well? How do we talk about and pursue ethnic harmony? How do we make sure we value men and women created in God's image and given distinct and complementary roles? How do we protect the vulnerable, including those in domestic abuse, marriages 
experiencing domestic abuse? How do we address sexual sin? How do we help those with mental health challenges? How do we help those struggling with same-sex attraction and gender confusion? And, And you can just see the list just goes on and on and on, not just in our church, but in every church and in America and across the world. And there's so many things, so many fault lines that we could say, I'm on this side and you seem to be on that side. We better find separate churches. And I just want to call us to be unified on the central things. Let's hold up Jesus really high in our church. And make sure we're not divided in all these other things. Yes, they're important. Yes, we're going to need to work through them. But let's gather around and look at our chief shepherd, Jesus Christ himself. He is risen and exalted. He alone is the head of the church. The rest of us are just trying not to screw it up. And so, we want to prioritize the ministry of word and prayer and then rightly address everything else, proportionally, lovingly, clearly, and with spirit-endowed wisdom. And I'm just going to admit that this season has been very hard. I think we all feel it to varying degrees. Who is sufficient for this task? But I'm going to ask you. We saw in this passage, the people are not passive spectators. They don't just stand back and say, well, figure it out, apostles. They participate. And so I'm calling us this morning. Pray. Devote yourself to pray. Pray for the church in America. Pray for the church around the world. Pray for our three campuses. Pray for Christ to be exalted. Pray for Jesus to be lifted high. I don't don't think I'm saying anything new when I say this, but the elders are actively asking the question of what organizational structure will best serve the advance of the gospel in the decades to come. That's a really big question. So pray. We're inviting you in to pray so that whatever happens, the word of God, the kingdom of God, would continue to increase. That's what we see. When they figure out all those problems, what takes place? The kingdom of God continues to increase. People keep getting saved. Even those that would be most resistant to getting saved get saved. And so, you know, Pastor Brian talked about we have a family meeting come up, coming up on the 18th. Come to that. We have a QSM coming up on the 25th. Come to that. I know those are not the most exciting meetings. And yet, it's part of our calling together as the people of God to care about what takes place here in the church. So at this church, you're not passive spectators, but you're participants. And I'm asking us that we would together seek the face of God for the glory of God, and for the good of his church. And maybe 5, 10, 15 years from now, we'll look back in that tumultuous season in 2020 and 2021, and we'll say, look what God did. Look what God did through the prayers of his people. And then I pray, would you join me in praying that at 6 verse 7 would be increasingly true of our church and of the church at large. 
that people would continue to come to saving faith in Jesus. I, I realize that there are people, not necessarily priests like in that day, that we think are so far beyond the gospel. that They believe in these things. They're never going to come inside this church. That they, they, Whatever it may be, we have those categories of people in mind that they're so far out of the reach of the gospel, and yet no one is out of the reach of the gospel. And so pray, pray that God would do a powerful and glorious work through this church and through the prayers of his people so that his name would be exalted and so that the name of Christ would be lifted high, high, high and holy in our midst. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would do that work among us this morning, that the name of Jesus would be exalted, that we would be a people that is unified around the most central realities. Jesus Christ, him crucified, risen, exalted, and ascended to his glorious throne. We love you. And we look to you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.